Well, North Roanoke, we're, uh, we're still in Mark, or in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, which Tanner read for us just a moment ago. And we're going to dive into those verses here in just a moment. I want to say to John and Jesse and Ryan and Lucas and Keith and anybody else I'm missing, thank you for uh, your service to us this morning in music and in song. And many of you may have an interest in being a part of a praise band or a praise team. You might you might play guitar. You might have some closet skills that you have not let the world know about. And if that's you, we'd love to know that. And I meant to mention that earlier. There's an announcement in your bulletin. There will be a meeting. I believe it's next Sunday at 6. Did I get that right, John? Next Sunday at 6 o'clock. So you say, you know, I sing really good in my car and I want to share my gift with the world. Then you want to be at that meeting at 6 o'clock next Sunday night where they'll have, we'll have an opportunity for instrumentalists and vocalists to get together. Uh, we'll talk a little bit just about worship, what the Bible says about worship, why we worship, the goal of worship. It's good to worship God, isn't it? That was weak. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that was so weak. Is it good to worship God? Amen. And to be with God's people? Amen. I mean, the reason we get together on Sundays is because we have something that most of the world doesn't have. We've been redeemed by the living Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us mouths to proclaim His praise and declare the good works that He has done. And I don't know about you, but I get excited about that. I can't wait for Sunday because not just because I get to stand here and preach, which that's fun. I mean, I like that. But the best part about Sunday is seeing brothers and sisters in Christ and coming together. It's a little teeny foretaste of what it's going to be like forever. When we get to use the mouths that God has given us to say how great our God is. I can't wait. So anyway, I hope you're in Mark chapter 10. Verses 13 through 16. I'm not going to read the verses again. Um, They're familiar passage. And I just want to pray right now and ask that God would help us to understand what God would want us to learn this morning. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we, we stand and sit this morning under your authority. I pray, God, that nothing that I would say would be contrary to what you would want us to hear. I pray, God, that you would loosen my mouth this morning to speak clearly. God, that you would open my heart to be so in tune with your Holy Spirit that I I can't help but communicate the love of God for your church family in Christ Jesus. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we, we heard about marriage. And some of you are here this week, but you couldn't be here last week. I don't normally do this, but but I did okay last week. And so if you're in a marriage or you're thinking about getting married and you want to know what God has to say about marriage, I would encourage you to check out Facebook Live uh, or the uh, the North Run Facebook page. Last week's sermon is there. You can listen to it. And what we learned last week is that God has designed marriage as a picture of Christ's unbreakable union with his church. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't ask his church for a divorce? I mean, think about that. You say, what are you, try- what are you trying to get at, Pastor? Have you ever said, done, or thought anything that displeases Jesus? Well, in that moment, Jesus would be entitled to, he would be okay, he would be in his, he would be in the right to say, well, forget you, Daniel. You didn't live for me today. But you know what? Jesus didn't do that to me. 
He went to the cross and He died for that sin and He rescued me and He forgave forgave me. So that's what God wants for your marriage. Even when it's tough, even when it's challenging, even when it's hard. He wants you to stay and stick in there and let the Spirit of God do an amazing transforming work in your life and making you more like Jesus. Secondly, marriage is a training ground where both husband and wife can become more like Jesus The road to the cross is full of adversity. It's full of trial. The road of marriage, guess what? Sometimes marriage brings adversity and trial. I I have like three nodding heads and the rest of you are liars. (laughs) Through the adversity and through the trial, God wants to shape your heart and make you more like Jesus who went in spite of the trial all the way to the cross for you. Now today... Jesus continues to show us that following Him means emptying ourselves of our desires to put comfort and convenience and privilege and prerogative and prominence and position and power ahead of our desire to be with Jesus and to be sent out by Jesus for His glory. You see, the kingdom of God doesn't work like the world, which is why Jesus can use children to illustrate what the kingdom of God is like. It's not about what we gain By what we do, rather the kingdom of God is the exact opposite of that. It's about being motivated by gratitude for what we've received. A new life that we could never ever have. That we could never gain or earn or deserve apart from Christ giving it to us through what He did on the cross. And you see, one of the best indicators, church, that we understand how desperately that we need Christ comes through our willingness to embrace others who desperately need Him. One of the greatest... Are you tracking with me this morning? One of the greatest evidences, proofs, that you really have the kingdom on the inside is that you are desperate for others who don't yet have the kingdom on the inside to get the kingdom on the inside. If you can have life everlasting on the inside and it doesn't motivate you one whit for somebody else to have that kingdom on the inside, there's a problem. So Mark contrasts the responses of the children to Jesus and the response of the disciples to the children who were brought. And we learn in these verses these three things. That if we're going to follow Christ and advance His kingdom in the world, the disciples know they're following the King because that's what Peter confessed back in chapter 8. But they still haven't figured out what kind of King they're following. And if we're going to serve the King Jesus and advance His kingdom in the world, there's three things that we learn. First, we must welcome all who come to be touched by Jesus. Even kids. Second, we must receive the kingdom like a little child. And finally, we must fulfill the purposes for which Christ has embraced and blessed and touched us. First, we must welcome all who come to be touched by Jesus. We've, we've been learning with every passing week, going all the way back into chapter 8, that the call to follow Jesus is a call that is costly. It will cost you something. It's a call to abandon our agenda for Christ's agenda. It's a call to serve the one who went to the cross to rescue His church, establish His kingdom, and who now commissions us to take the good news to the ends of the earth. In other words, our lives aren't about us. They're about Jesus. And if you want to find real life, then find life in living for the living Lord Jesus Christ. And if marriage last week 
did not teach you that it's not all about you, then just wait till you throw some bambinos in the mix. Yeah, there's nothing like a little 3 a.m. feeding or a dirty diaper or somebody who's screaming their head out and you can't figure out why to teach you that life is not all about you. I remember I got a phone call at work when, we, when I was down at Southeastern. Elizabeth was less than two and she was in the pack and play. Y'all know pack and plays? Praise God for pack and plays. You throw them in the car and instant sort of crib wherever you go. They're wonderful. Well, Stacy was doing dishes or something and Elizabeth's in the pack and play and I get a phone call. Hey, why do you get a phone call? You're, you, I'm like, what's going on? All right, because it rings once and I didn't take it because I was in a meeting tied up, you know, and then it rings again. And when guys, this is free advice. If your wife calls a second time, take the call. So I took the call and um, here's the question. Daniel, it's everywhere. What do you mean it's everywhere? It is everywhere. It's on her arms, it's on her legs, it's all over the packet plate, it's up the sides of the wall. I don't know where to start. <laughs> and I paused for a second and I said, I got it. Get some gloves. <laughs> Love ya. In a meeting. Bye. <laughs> There's nothing like kids to teach you. It's not all about you. Jesus wants us to see that following a king who is willing to be inconvenienced for our salvation means we must be willing to be inconvenienced to bring his salvation to others. You see, the kids that are in view here, the word that's used for children is not just big children. It's actually the word for little children. The same text in Luke. Luke uses the word babies. People are bringing their children to Jesus, their little children. And the word bringing here means to bring in hope. I think it's interesting that people who don't have Jesus figured out yet have already figured out enough about Jesus to know that there's hope to be found when you come to Jesus. There's hope there. They're bearing their children to Jesus. They're, they're optimistic that a touch from Jesus will benefit their children in some way and so they bring them. And I think the lesson for North Roanoke Baptist Church is that we need to be a place where people can bring their children, even though they don't have all the things figured about, out about who Jesus is, that they encounter when they walk through the door a hopefulness. That there's a Jesus here. That there's somebody here that these people know that they really believe exists and they love and they serve. And when they bring their kids to us in hope, that we will prove that their hope was not misplaced. See, they believe that Jesus is going to make a difference in the lives of their children. The world tells us that children are messy and fussy and little and unimportant and expendable. They even tell us don't have too many kids because the carbon they exhale is going to ruin the planet. God help us. God knew that we exhaled carbon when He built the garden. And He built a world that could accommodate more carbon. Because He built a world and a planet where He said, Make little worshipers to go to the ends of the earth. So if you're not having children because you don't want to ruin the planet, stop it. Because God said, Have a bunch of babies. That's what the world says. But the church says, or at least it should say, with its facilities, with the eagerness of its volunteers, with the attention that it pays to parents of children, with its programs, we should be saying the exact opposite of what the world says. 
The world says children are too dependent. They're too needy. They're too expensive. They take too much time. And Jesus says it's only the dependent and the needy who can get in the kingdom anyway. And the expense that they should have paid, I paid it in full in the blood of the living Lord Jesus Christ. So you bring those babies, you bring those toddlers, you bring those ragamuffins, rugrats, and kiddos. Because the living Lord Jesus Christ wants to show the grace of God to entire families through ministry to children. Did you know, did you know that people who trust Christ in the United States... 85% of the people who trust Christ in the United States do so before the age of 15. 85%. So let me ask you a question, church. Where do you want to spend your time? Where do you want to spend your resources? Where do you want to invest? You want to go early because the earlier you get a biblical worldview and an understanding of the gospel into the hearts and lives of kids, the greater the opportunity for them to hear and to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you had a stock that was returning 85% and one that was returning 3%, where are you going to invest your money? And I know the church is not stock and we've got to serve all ages, all demographics, all groups. But we should pour our lives into kids. We don't know who's bringing the kids, by the way. You see that in verse 13? It just says they. Have you ever noticed that about children's ministry? You get all kinds of people attached to the kids that they bring. It's not just moms and dads together. Sometimes it's a single mom. Sometimes it's a single dad. Sometimes it's grandparents. Sometimes it's even the great-grandparents, the foster parents, the big brother, the big sister, the aunt, the uncle, the cousin. When you do real intensive ministry to children, you get all sorts of people attached to those kids. There's nothing else quite like ministry to children to give us the opportunity to reach all kinds of people for Christ. And why is that? Because the desire that we have for our children to thrive is a universal language I mean, I've occasionally met somebody who can't stand their kid, but that's really hard to find. Most people love their kid. Even if they don't know why. Even if they have nothing to do with the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus told us as much in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? That's why we need people willing to serve in preschool and children's ministry. It's not because Lynn Wampler has a need on Wednesday nights that I hope will be filled by the end of this Sunday, and I do, but that's not why. The reason we need people in children's ministry is because children's ministry isn't just about children. It's also about the they who bring their children to Jesus in hope that He can make a difference in their lives. You want to have a chance to touch people's lives, love their kids and see what happens. But children, and particularly little children, require time and sacrifice, which is why in Jesus' day, kids were viewed as a liability until they could contribute to society. Not much has changed. The leading ethicist at Princeton University today says that children are expendable before four years of age. They can't produce anything in society. They can't take it themselves. They don't really add much value to life. So if you don't want to have your four-year-old around anymore, then you can just take care of him. His name's Peter Singer. And he's the leading ethicist at Princeton University, which was founded as a Christian school 250 years ago. But children aren't expendable. They're loved by God. 
even though welcoming children means being willing to be interrupted. Are you willing to be interrupted for the sake of Christ? Kids will interrupt you. It means being willing to adjust. Samuel was going to read the scripture in the first service this morning, but his little tummy was hurting him all night long. And so Stacy and I were rotating, spending time in his bed, trying to get him to calm down and tell him it was nothing. But at 5 o'clock he proved that nothing was something. And <laughs> So we had a little switcheroo. We had to adjust. And Elizabeth read the scripture this morning in the first service. You've got to be willing to adjust when there's kids around. You've got to be willing to adapt and innovate and be interrupted. The reason Jesus put you on His team was to be an extension of His sacrificial love for other people. But the disciples still don't get it. They don't want to do those things. They just want to hang out with Jesus and keep Him to Himself and be comfortable and say, We're in the kingdom. Look at us. And when they do that... Look what they do. They rebuked the people bringing the kids, just like Jesus had rebuked demons earlier. And when the disciples rebuke people who are trying to get to Jesus, they're acting like political handlers or gatekeepers rather than extension of God's compassion to others in need. And do you see what Jesus does in verse 14? It's the only time this word is applied to Jesus. He responds with indignation. Do you know what indignation is? It's anger taken to a whole other level. Like there's anger that you can keep on the inside nobody knows about. You just keep smiling. And then there's that, that moment of anger that everybody knows. Yeah, he's angry. His face is red or his ears are red. He's, that guy's angry. Jesus gets indignant. The only time he gets indignant in the entire gospel and has an anger that can be felt is when? It's when his disciples try to shoo the kids away. He's indignant. Why? Because he has a compassion for those who are brought to him in hope, but the disciples are still just thinking about themselves. In North Carolina, I want to be a church that when the people of God are gathered, that we're not so riveted to one another that we forget those that might come in to our midst that God wants us to serve. We need to be a welcoming church. We need to be a friendly church. We need to be looking for the people who are coming, hoping that they might have a reason to find hope and proving in the way that we smile and we interact and we're receiving them that indeed this is a place that you can come and you can find hope. So Jesus gives these two commands to the, to the knucklehead disciples. Can you say that? I just did. One, let the children come to me. And two, never ever again. It's in the present tense, which means it never stops. Which means it's a command that's given to the church today. Never ever ever again get in the way of children coming to me. Verse 14. You see church, what the world needs is not a church that just says abortion is wrong. What the world needs is not just a church that lobbies Congress while those things are good. But it needs a church that says, let me show you the love of Christ for children and let me show you what it looks like. The world needs a church that has babies, adopts babies, pours the gospel into children and students and opens its doors to anyone who would bring their children and hope that Jesus would touch their child and change their lives for good. The world needs churches that have to put people on a waiting list because they're so eager to volunteer in preschool and children's ministry. Why? Because we're so compelled by Christ's desire to give Himself to people who recognize their need for Him. The world needs to see Christian parents taking an active role in leading their children to Jesus. Not just dropping them off at the church and assuming the church is going to accomplish in three hours what you have an entire lifetime from zero to eighteen to accomplish. 
going through the Bible in the home, praying in the home, following through in the home. Did you know, parents, that it is loving your children to follow through when you ask them to do something and they don't do it and you tell them what the consequence is going to be to go ahead and give them the consequence? Because there is a consequence for not listening and obeying Christ. Now, praise God, He bore that ultimate consequence on the cross for us, but if you're not training them through consequences to know that they need the gospel in the first place, then how are they going to know they need the gospel? So don't say it's love to keep kicking the, the ball down the road on disciplining your little son or daughter. It's not. The reason we need gospel is because there's consequences if we don't come to Christ and have our heart changed and motivate us to want to obey Him out of love. What is, it, what is loving your parents look like for a five-year-old? It looks like obeying your parents. What does loving your parents look like for a 10-year-old? It looks like obeying your parents. Students, even when you're 16 and 17 and 18 and you've got your own opinions and your own thoughts, but your mom and your dad or your mom or your dad are providing for your meals and your groceries and your car and your insurance and you're still sitting in their house, what does it look like to honor your parents and to love Jesus? It looks like obeying your parents. Nobody said amen. amen. The point that Jesus is making is it's not only about little children, but it's about all who are like children in the way they come to Jesus. Do you see that in verse 14? Such as these. Jesus is using children as a metaphor or an example for the way all kinds of people get in the kingdom. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call the sick. He didn't come for the people who've got it all figured out and think they don't need Jesus. He came for the sick and the poor and the tired and the hungry and the overlooked and the dispossessed. Those whose only hope is that Jesus might touch them. Those are the ones that Jesus came to save. And what Jesus is saying, church, is our willingness to receive children is an indicator of whether we have in mind the things of God or the things of men. Following Jesus means moving beyond what is comfortable to embrace those that Christ has come to serve. It means offering English language classes to immigrants who otherwise couldn't learn English. It means serving in the nursery, coaching a rec sport, coaching upward, modernizing our facilities to accommodate children as best we can. It means we must not see ourselves as selfish gatekeepers of what is comfortable. Rather, we must be grateful ambassadors of a king who died. To set us free. Secondly, we must receive the king like the kingdom like a little child. In verse 15, Jesus answers an implied question. Maybe you've heard the sermon on verses 13 and 14, and you think, I don't want to do that. I don't want to accommodate other people. I don't want to be open to change. Here's the implied question. What if I'm unwilling to be inconvenienced by others who desperately need to get to Jesus? And Jesus basically says, do you really understand what God has given to you? If you're not desperate for others who are desperate, then maybe you don't yet have the desperation that is required to get into the kingdom. The kingdom, by the way, refers to all that comes with belonging to King Jesus. Your sins forgiven, a new perspective on life that comes from assurance in life everlasting, a spirit-given power to live for others as Christ lived for you. A sure hope of life everlasting in the new heavens and the new earth. And we don't earn or deserve any of it. It must be received. Do you see that? 
It must be received, verse 15, like a child. Like one who has no credits, no clout, or no claims. Life in the kingdom must be received as a gift from God. And it can only be received by those who are personally carried to Jesus to receive His life-changing touch. You say, well, who's going to personally carry me to Jesus? The Spirit of God will. The Spirit of God will show you your sin. He'll show you your hard-heartedness. He'll begin to convict you on the inside. And you'll say, I'm not living like that. I'm not living for that King. And God Himself will carry you to Christ. And He will give you life and entrance into the kingdom. Now, here's an important caveat this morning. When we talk about kids... There's a lot of people who think about the cute and the cuddliness of kids. But the lesson that Jesus is teaching is not that children are innocent or that they're cuddly or that they're cute. Rather, as Edwards tells us, he's teaching us that the children are not blessed because of their virtue, but because of what they lack. And what do they lack? They, they come only as they are, small, powerless, without sophistication, and as the overlooked and dispossessed of society. In other words, they come with open hands. They come entirely dependent upon another. Someone brings them to, them to Jesus and they simply receive what Jesus offers to give them. You know, in the NICU, the babies are not debating who's the greatest. The disciples are still having this debate. Well, who gets to be king disciple for the day? Who's the most important? Who's the greatest? In the NICU, they don't care. In the NICU, they just want the milk they need to survive. They just want the next dose of medicine. They just want somebody to come do the thermal scan on their forehead because they don't know how they ended up in the NICU anyway. That's the picture of what we look like when we come to Jesus. And it's the picture of what we should look like as we serve in Jesus' kingdom. We are entirely dependent upon what Christ would give us for life. And we're so completely grateful for it. We're not comparing, well, you did this this week and I did this this week and I've been a Christian for 10 years and you've been a Christian for 100 years and so you're more important than me. We're not doing that stuff because everything that we contribute is only because of what God gave us in the first place. As Wearsby tells us, we tell children to behave like adults, but Jesus tells the adults to model themselves after the children. The little children, if you got a gift from me, I'll take it, God, because I am hopeless and I am desperate for whatever you can give me. And when you come like that, watch what God will fill you up to overflowing with on the inside. Little children illustrate the sort of dependence and helplessness mixed with hope that is required of anyone who comes in God's kingdom. All we bring is our neediness to Jesus, knowing that He can fill empty hands. You don't have to convince a child to open a gift. When it's Christmas at the Palmer's house, my little daughter Elizabeth, she's not so little anymore, but she gathers up every gift and she acts like she's being helpful. But she runs under that tree and she gets Samuel's stack and her stack and my stack and Stacy's stack and she is ready. It, you don't have to convince a kid to receive a gift. You can give them it. You can give them up. I don't know, box of mud, wrap it up, put a bow on it, and be like, yeah, what's in there? I mean, they're ready for it. And when you understand what Jesus offers you through His death and resurrection, you won't need convincing either. When you really see it, when the light really comes on, you will open that gift with, with a holy ferocity. The proof that we are in the kingdom is not just having the right answers about Jesus, it's having a true passion for Jesus and those that He came to save. 
A little more than a year ago, I preached this exact same text, which is found in Luke 18. And in his commentary on Luke's Gospel, Butler writes this, Childlikeness is not just one possible way among others to be part of Christ's kingdom. Being like a child is the only way to kingdom living. If you cannot do away with your pretensions, your greed, your claims to fame, your need to dominate and control, your grasp for identity and power, you can't be a part of God's kingdom. So I want to ask you, church, I want to ask you, friend, have you received God's kingdom? Or is it still all about you? Is it still all about what you can do or what you can earn or what you can deserve or somebody did this to me or somebody didn't do this to me? Are you still living in the past, trying to cover up the sins of the past with the good deeds of the present? Or have you come to a place where you understand there's nothing you could ever do to pay for your sin but give your life to Christ who's already paid it in full? Do you have the kingdom? And then finally, for those of you who say, I, I've given my life to Christ. I, I know that Christ loves me. I know that He died for my sin. Then I want you to take a, a good look at verse 16. I want to ask you this question. Have you remembered or discovered the joy of being embraced and blessed and commissioned by Christ? Because this is what happens when you really get the kingdom on the inside. This is what, this is what it looks like. You see, some people have used verse 16 to justify baptizing babies. But that's not what this verse is about. We know that because Jesus hasn't gotten to the cross yet. He has not yet died, been buried, and raised. And so it's not a picture of babies putting saving faith in Jesus. Rather, Jesus is using children as an illustration of what Jesus does in the lives of everyone who receives the kingdom like, that's an important word you can underline in your Bible, like a little child. In other words, we all have to receive the kingdom like a child. In other words, with complete dependence upon Christ the King. And when that happens, when the Spirit of God interrupts your life with conviction about your sin and the death and the judgment that it deserves, when the Holy Spirit leads you to a place of desperate openness to receiving Christ as your life and your substitute, then boom, something amazing happens. Look at what Jesus does. When this really happens in your life, look at verse 16. He embraces, blesses, and touches those who come to Him. In verse 16, we see a physical picture of what Christ will do inside of anyone who comes to Him in helpless but hope-filled desperation. Do you see what He did first? He took them in His arms. How many of you, this morning, if you're honest, need to feel the embrace of God in Christ in your heart, in your heart and life this morning? You know, there's times and seasons in pastoral ministry when in dealing with the brokenness of the world, because I see the brokenness every day. I see it in counseling. I see it in preparing sermons. I, I see it all the time. There's times when I get in the door at whatever time it is in the evening. The one thing that I need is to be embraced by my wife and my kids and to know their love. And for every believer, you are made to know and to feel and sense and enjoy the love of God. And when we come to Jesus in desperation, we don't find Him with His arms crossed saying, Well, what have you done for me lately? Instead, we find the Savior with His arms open, ready to embrace us. And there's some of you this morning, you've been walking in a pattern of sin that you know displeases God. You lack the joy of your salvation. And you need to be 
freshly reminded this morning that when you come to Jesus in desperation, you don't find him saying, no, no, no. You find him with his arms open, ready to hug you and to feel and to know the love of God. Some of you are like the prodigal. You've been running from dealing with your sin for so long, fearing what others might think or what God might do. But when you turn from your sin and run to Jesus, you find a Savior who's ready to embrace you and give you the love of God. You're like the prodigal. You've been on the run, squandering the life that God wants for you. And today is the day that Jesus says, get up, run to me. And in the moment you run to me, you will discover the love of God that conquers and erases sin. In that very moment, you'll discover that Jesus is the tender and affectionate Savior to those who bring nothing to Him but their need. You see, the people had brought their children to Jesus hoping that He would just touch them, but instead He embraces them, and He doesn't just embrace them, then He pronounces blessing on their life. And, and the word blessing here is, is a reference to the presence of God with us. In the Old Testament, Jacob, do you remember he blessed his sons and his grandsons and he put them all in the family of Israel? Well, here Jesus is blessing these children and he's saying, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be with you wherever life takes you. Jesus embraces us and blesses us with his enduring presence and continual access as sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. And then finally, do you see what Jesus does? He laid his hands on them. In the Old Testament, Moses laid his hands on Joshua as a sign that God's authority was being transferred to Joshua to lead his people into salvation. In Psalm 139.5, David refers to the Lord's hand upon him as a sign of divine protection. In Jesus' ministry, he sometimes laid hands on the sick and healed them. In the church, the laying of hands on people signified the setting apart of them as deacons or missionaries or pastors. And in all of these cases, the laying on of hands signified that God was doing something on the inside of the individual that had to come from God. With the transforming touch of Christ comes the power to do what Christ has called us to do. From the transforming touch of Christ comes the power to live for Him and for the gospel in the middle of a broken world. Because the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Church, we can abandon ourselves to our own agendas and live for Christ's agenda. We can welcome those who come in desperation, hoping that Christ will heal their lives. We can live our lives for the good of the church and the advance of the gospel in the world. Why? Because Christ saw us in our sinful desperation and He first loved us and He welcomed us with open arms. And He said, when you come desperate, feel and know the love and the blessing and the commission of God until Christ comes again. This morning, I hope you learned the lesson of children and the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. We thank you for the privilege of crying out to you in worship. And we ask, God, that as we come to the table this morning and remember what you've done for us in Christ, that we would not neglect to be grateful, that we would not neglect to examine ourselves. And God, as we examine ourselves, surely you will bring to mind things that we've said or done or thought, even in the past week, that not, have not pleased you. 
God, remind us this morning that there's more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. And that if we will confess our sin, we will find that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then God, that same desperation that we feel over our sin and, and our lack of knowing you apart from what you've done for us. God, I pray that you would make us desperate for others to know you as well. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.